independent media is more important than ever. We don't have a corporate network behind us, and we also don't have big green foundation grants. So we really do need you, and we are actively calling in your direct support so that we can continue exploring many of these topics and perspectives, often sidelined by mainstream media. If you're enjoying our show, please make sure you're subscribed and join us on Patreon today, starting at a tip of just $3 at patreon.com slash green dreamer. Every little bit helps and really adds up. And that is the power in community. So thank you so much for however you're able to support our work. So I went to very protected populations of elephants, of wolves and of killer whales and I found in each place, even though they were they were so protected, that they all faced lethal threats from humans all the time. Why is it that we need to instill a sense of moral obligation to not cause some species to go extinct? How can we tell more powerful stories around sustainability to actually move people and inspire action? That's just the tip of the iceberg of what you'll hear today. If you're not already following me on Instagram, you can find me there at Kamea Shane. I'll be sharing more of my ongoing learning lessons, inspirations, resources, and reminders for you to recenter and stay grounded because we need you in your best health and focus to support this movement. I look forward to connecting there. And now to our episode. Let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast for creatives, visionaries, and entrepreneurs dreaming of a sustainable future. Thank you for bringing your light. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. Our guest today is a biologist, conservationist, and award-winning author and speaker. His writing about the living world actually won a MacArthur Genius Prize, and he's also a regular contributor to The New York Times, Time, Audubon, HuffPost, and on the web at National Geographic News and Views. He's also the founder of the Safina Center, which is a nonprofit dedicated to advancing the case for life on Earth by fusing together scientific understanding, emotional connection, and a moral call to action. And they do this through literature, research, photography, film, sound art, and spoken words. His latest book is Beyond Words, What Animals Think and Feel. And you'll hear him talk a little bit about this in our conversation. Green Dreamer, starting with what inspired his passion for nature, here's Carl Safina. Well, I'm not I'm not 100% sure about that because I've always been extremely interested in animals. And until the time I was 10 years old, we lived in Brooklyn in a tenement flat where there's really not much in the way of animals or wildlife. But my father's hobby was raising canaries. And uh, from the essentially the time I was born and opened my eyes, I could watch birds getting on and off their nests and feeding their babies and uh, chicks hatching out of eggs and things like that. So that was a bit unusual. And my father was a bit of a fisherman. Um, I loved fishing and, um, we would sometimes go to the Bronx zoo or to the museum of natural history or to the aquarium at Coney Island. And, uh, always, all of that just totally excited me right from the time I was very tiny 
I did learn when I was about seven that there was a phrase called endangered species. Mm. And I learned what that was. And I thought, well, that's bad. And uh, I, I guess it just sort of put an idea in my mind that maybe someday I would try to help with that problem. And I, I always did have a passion for being outside, being near animals, um, sort of a, a desperate desire to get involved with some kind of research or conservation work. What was one of the most like alarming things you learned that made you want to dedicate your life and career to this? Well, honestly, the first thing that comes to mind is that the most alarming thing I saw was, uh, well, my father would sometimes take us down to the beach to go fishing at sunset after work. And, um, we would often be stopped in this town we had to pass through by the commuter train, all these commuters from New York City. And I watched all these men getting off the train and they all looked the same. They all looked, they were all dressed the same. They all had the same briefcase. Their head was down at the same angle. And they literally terrified me. And the, and the most alarming thing was the thought that inexorably for a male growing up, you have to get a job that you hate that drains you. So even though I had a passion to try to get involved with animals, I also had a, a desperate desire to escape the usual track of a corporate job in an office that involved the commuter train to New York. Mm -hmm. And what do you think gave you the courage to be different than most other people? Fear. <laughs> I I had no, I had really no, there was no acceptable alternative, but to try to be different because I was afraid of being like everybody else. So how did your work as an ecologist get started? There was a tremendous amount of blundering because I didn't really have any guidance. Nobody knew anything about what I wanted to do. And I didn't know anything about what I wanted to do. I didn't know anybody who did any research or anything like that. And I, I wound up going to college for environmental science by accident, simply because I had started college at the local community college, on, only because it was the cheapest. And my father told me I had to go there. And um, it was awful and boring. And um, a friend of mine, toward the end of that freshman year, a friend of mine was going for a college interview um, and asked me if I felt like taking the ride with him because he didn't want to go by himself. So I went with him and I was going to sit in the waiting room and read. And they, they said, do you want to come in? So I went into his interview and I found out about this bachelor's degree in environmental science and it was thrilling. And I applied and I uh, got in. Then I I still didn't know anything about careers, but at least there was a professor or two there that were doing things like I was very interested in doing. And eventually, um, I volunteered to work with one of my professors in the last semester of my senior year. So as I was getting out of college, I started volunteering with him on some seabird research. He introduced me to the person who became my graduate advisor. I did a lot more seabird research. I was working by that time as a volunteer at a local nature center, and a volunteer's position opened up at a new place 
that had no staff and I saw what seemed like maybe a big opportunity there, even though there was no money involved at first. But I wound up staying at that place for 23 years Mm. and becoming a vice president in a national environmental group. So I I can't say uh, I I can say I had a lot of passion. I cannot say I had plans because Mm -hmm. I didn't really understand anything. I did a lot of blundering around. For sure. And throughout all of these years working really closely with the environment, what's been one of your most moving experiences? Well, there have been so many very moving experiences. I think the first thing that really turned me into um, an environmentalist at heart was that when I was a young teenager, adolescent, I used to take my bicycle from our suburban development to a couple of big patches of woods on Long Island. And I went there one day and there were bulldozers knocking all the trees down and they, they just built another housing tract in there. And I realized that every place that you know is not necessarily secure and that places you love can be lost. Then maybe um, 10 years after that, I realized that I, I, used, to, I used to be extremely avid about fishing. And um, I I realized that all the fish were getting less and less common and more and more depleted. And um, by then I was in a position to try to do something about it. So at that time, I figured out how to start a program in fisheries management reform. And I, I worked a lot on fisheries management reform in the early 90s. By that time, I transitioned away from doing research on seabirds to trying to protect and uh, restore fish populations. We actually had a lot of success with that, uh, making a major legislative change that has had a lot of um, a lot of positive effects, although it's every few years they try to unravel it. They're trying to unravel it now. Mm-hmm. Well, so you've done so much with your work, your writing, storytelling to raise awareness for environmental concerns. What's been one of your greatest struggles that you've faced all of these years? Well, it's just so very hard to get a lot of people to really care about other creatures and wild places and things outside of themselves or, um, you know, to be truly passionate uh, and truly compassionate about simply about the fact that we need to leave some room for all the other things that are on earth with us. And, uh, and that, uh, you know, most people, you know, they're just not aware of all the declines that have happened or even the recoveries that have happened. It's just, um, they, they're not aware. So they don't have any major concerns and they, since they're not aware, they don't they don't know what works or what has worked and what has brought some species back from the brink of extinction. So it's it's um, it's difficult to try to uh, you know get people engaged on that at a really at a really major scale. The people who are not already engaged, it's always a big question of what do you do to do it better, and and is it even possible to to get lots and lots of people. To, to care about things that don't necessarily affect them directly, like, um, you know, populations of songbirds like warblers. Mo- most people don't even know what warblers are. Um, so how could they care if they were going away? And uh, that's true for many, many species and many places. 
Yeah, and you founded the Safina Center, which creates an original blend of science, art, and literature that inspires a deeper connection with nature, especially the sea. And I know a problem that we face today is being able to powerfully communicate science with the public, kind of like when what you mentioned. And it sounds like this is one of the things that you're trying to uh, address with your work. So what do you think it takes to communicate science effectively to actually inspire change in action? I think one thing it takes, I mean, first of all, if I knew the answer, I would be doing it very, very effectively. But (laughs) I I think one thing that it takes is to not be trying to communicate science. I'm not trying to communicate science. I don't, I, I am a scientist. I don't consider myself a science writer or a science communicator. I'm trying to communicate the findings of science as regard, you know, in regard to the the living world, nature and wild species and our relationship with the world. Um, It's the findings that are important. It's not, I'm not a booster necessarily for science. I'm not, um, I'm not trying to get people to love science, even though I do, I'm trying to get them to really feel what the findings are about what's going on in the world regarding our relationship with nature. And I, and I think that the key to that is to try to connect with people where they are and try to find the overlap between what they're most concerned about and what's going on with uh, other species, implications for what people are most concerned about. Most people are concerned about the health of their families. Mm-hmm. And they're concerned about their financial security. Those are, the, those are the two concerns that most people really have. So there's some overlap between that and conservation. But one of the problems is I think, I think you have to be fairly healthy and fairly secure before you can really be concerned about the fate of some species or some wild land somewhere. Uh, you know, you have to be able, you have to be able to afford the, the ability to, you know, not be too worried about yourself. And Mm -hmm. a lot of people are very worried about themselves these days. So do you think the key is to tie these conservation issues to issues that feel that hit closer to home, like health? I think if you can do that, that is definitely very powerful. And, you know, we certainly have that if we're talking about pollution, for instance. But, um, and to a certain extent, we have it if the things that are killing other animals are the things that might kill us, which, again, has to do with um, things like pollution or uh, the psychological effects of not having any nature accessible to people, people who live in, you know, really just urban, um, deep city landscapes. But but those are mostly poor people. And, and um, most people don't care too much about poor people. So um, I think when you start to get to most species, you you run up against the the problem or the fact that these are really moral questions. They're moral dilemmas. They're a matter of deciding what is right or wrong to do. And yet most of the institutions that um, purport to give us guidance on valuation of the world also don't care too much about 
nature. And, um, you know, most religions, for instance, don't do too much preaching about conservation or endangered species. And uh, we have one one thing really standing out as uh, an exception to that, which is the Pope's encyclical on the environment is a very startling exception to that. I cannot say that I, I really feel the effect of that on the ground or hear a lot of people talking about it, but I think that he's onto it um, in a way that overlaps and resonates the most with the way that I'm onto it, which is that it's, it's a matter of compassion and um, moral urgency for many of these species that are alive with us on earth that we that we actually could live without you know a lot a lot of environmentalists say if if elephants go extinct and rhinos go extinct and sharks go extinct well then so will we i i I think that that's false and um i think if elephants go extinct we'll live in a world with no elephants we already live in a hemisphere with no elephants. There's no elephants living in North or South America anymore. There have not been for about 4,000 years, not a very long time. But um, clearly we can live without them. So that experiment is done. The only, the only real reason to care about elephants is to actually care about elephants. And I think that um, a lot of environmental issues, that's simply the truth of it and the attempts to kind of kind of tell people that you know if this goes extinct it'll be bad for you or if we lose this wild land it will be bad for you or if we kill all the wolves again it will be bad for you i i don't really think that that's it's not true on its face it will be bad for everybody to live in a world where we killed all these things and where the human brutality that we're capable of is the thing that shapes the world instead of the human compassion that we're also capable of. That will be bad for everybody, but not not in any, uh, I don't think, in any direct or economic way. I think it's just very corrosive. But the, but the main effect is that we will have destroyed these fantastic and beautiful and wondrous things that have been here for much longer than we have been here. They have an equal claim to existence that, that we have. So when you feel so deeply connected to nature yourself and you're witnessing firsthand this negative trend for the future, how do you deal with this without letting it drain you? Uh, just like I did about an hour ago, I went to get ice cream. <laughs> ice cream, a glass of wine. Um, mostly what I do, though, is I go outside and get out of my head and out of a lot of bad information. And I remind myself how much beauty and how much vitality and how much of the living world still exists and is trying as hard as possible to survive. And also to remind myself that things that I thought were doomed when I was a teenager have largely recovered. Um, We have other things that seem doomed now. So the fact that a lot of other things came back um, and are very common around where I live. I'm talking about things like ospreys. When I was a kid, there were no ospreys in this whole region. They had been totally destroyed by DDT, and it looked like they were completely done forever. Same with peregrine falcons, same with bald eagles, same with whales. Whales were um, 
uh, non, nobody saw whales. We knew that they were out there somewhere, a few of them, but nobody saw them. Uh, and all of these things have recovered very noticeably, even while some of the things that were common when I was a kid, like uh, tuna or um, some of the sea turtles um, or some, uh, let's see, what's a good example on land around here? A quail or whippoorwills. A lot of those things that were common when I was a kid are, are extremely rare now, while others came back. The reason that they came back is that a few people dealt with the problem successfully. And when, when the problem goes away, as it says in Jurassic Park, life finds a way. And a lot of these things can recover. If there are enough of them left for recoveries, they can recover. But we've, we've created other problems for other species. So it's a constant fight and it's a constant struggle. But there are some big successes and I can see them every time I go for a walk. So that helps me a lot. For sure. So there is hope. We just have to keep raising awareness and being problem solvers. Yeah. I mean, we do have to attack these problems. Yes. And, and they're... You, you never really can – you can lose decisively, but you never really can win decisively forever. A lot of these things have to be revisited in a few years or a few decades or some of them um, are replaced by new and equal matters of concern. So it's like kind of like a relay race where when it's our time to work and be vital, we have to do what we can, we can and try to hand – our successors, uh, a world at least as good as we got it, and ho hope that they carry on that way. Yeah. And your latest book, Beyond Words, What Animals Think and Feel, what was your motivation to write this book? A few things. One, honestly, was I didn't want to write um, another book about the same issues in the ocean that I had written about. I didn't want to start writing the same book over again in different ways. I I wanted to give myself a break from writing about conservation and these depressing things for the duration of one book project. That didn't work that way because I went to the most protected populations of these species that I wrote about. I, I, I just wanted to write about what life is like for them, how how they really are when they get to live their own life. So I went to very protected populations of elephants, of wolves, and of killer whales. And I found in each place, even though they were, they were so protected, that they all faced lethal threats from humans all the time anyway. So there is a lot in that book that has to do with conservation. Some, some of it is, is pretty sad, mixed in um, with all the stuff about the animals themselves that I think is pretty happy and pretty thrilling. Uh, the other thing that I realized while I was working on the book is that we usually t talk about conservation in numbers. We say a certain species, species X, has declined by 85% and they've lost 4% uh, of their habitat each year for the last 20 years and they're down to 3,000. And all of that is numbers and statistics, and it tells you a little bit about what is at stake, but it doesn't tell you at all about who is at stake. And, you know, to, to say that you're concerned about elephants or killer whales is one thing, but to actually know anything about elephants or killer whales is quite different. 
So I thought I, I have an opportunity to let the animals make their own case for their own existence by going and showing how they live, what decisions they make, who their family is, how devoted they are to one another, how many of these creatures have certain friends and allies and family members for the entire duration of their lives, which can be very long. For elephants, it can be 60 years. For killer whales, it could be 80 years or a century. And in the case of one whale, it lived for more than 100 years. And, um, I, you know, most people don't really know anything about animals because who gets the opportunity to spend the time really watching them or reading hundreds of research articles from science journals it takes devotion and effort to do that. And I'm lucky enough to be able to do that and, and try to bring their world to people and try to bring people into their world. So to really tell the story this way, um, it really stirs emotions because it goes beyond just numbers and statistics. Well, if you don't make an emotional connection, you really have not accomplished anything at all because people filter information through their values and, and values are emotional things. So if I tell you that, you know, let's just say I tell you that an elephant gets shot every 20 minutes or all of the killer whales that have been born in the last five years off uh, in the waters off Washington state have died you could say, oh, those that's terrible. Or you could say, well, I don't care. I, elephants and killer whales don't mean anything to me. So whether you think it's terrible or whether you think it must be changed and, and something must be done depends entirely on your values. And values are emotional things. So if you can't make an emotional connection, you you can't accomplish anything. And so that's one of the reasons I said I'm not really writing about science. I'm writing about the findings of science. And what I'm really trying to do is help people to care about what's happening with animals and to, and to want to care about their recovery and their abundance and to continue having a world that includes everything that was here when we got here. Mm -hmm. And a lot of us are creatives, writers, and entrepreneurs wanting to um, learn how to tell more compelling stories as it has to do with sustainability. What would your biggest pieces of guidance be for us? All of us have a lot of decisions that we make all the time about how we live, uh, about um, what we say to people, about who we vote for, about what what we want our careers to become or where we want to take the careers we have, or simply about what kinds of people we want to be. None of us can be perfect, but all of us can find a lot of ways to kind of ratchet, ratchet toward improvements and be a little bit better all the time. And uh, some of our decisions have a big effect, uh, you know, especially collectively. What, what we eat, who we vote for, how we run our homes, these things collectively are, are what give the world the shape that it, it has. And um, they are important things to think about, talk about, and try to put some energy into. So in the bigger picture, what do you think we need most to accelerate towards a thriving planet? We need mostly, on a planetary basis, we mostly need far, far fewer people than we have. And we're going to add well, uh, you know, I should say there are twice as many people on Earth as there were when I was born. 
And that has not made the world twice as good a place as it was when I was born. <laughs> people are, I, I think of people as too much of a good thing. Uh, you know, individually, there are lots and lots and lots of people who are wonderful, but there's, the, the planet has certain finite limits and having billions more people, we're supposed to have two billion more people, that will make everything harder. All of them will want the things that people want for dignity and, and survival in life, and they'll all want not just food. People say, oh, there's plenty of food. But what does it take to make that food? Where does that food come from? It all comes from land. It all comes from water, comes from pesticides and fertilizers, comes from killing animals. And um, they're all going to also need water. They're going to need wood. They're going to need space. They're going to um, use energy. And it will have a gigantic effect. So if you look at the things that if you look at the countries where population is still increasing and where it has flattened or has started to decline, the places where it has flattened or is declining are places where women have gotten really full citizenship in the last couple of generations, where they can, uh, where women can go to school, where they can own businesses, get loans, uh, do everything, you know, where they, where they can do everything, where they're full citizens. And you don't have to convince anybody then of any values about nature or the environment or anything else, because when people can make their own decisions, they want to be healthy and they want to be educated and engaged, and they have smaller families completely voluntarily, and that that solves the problem. So if there's really one thing to work on, it's really – women's equality and women's equity and um, uh, and women's issues. I'm, I'm an ecologist and a nature guy, and, and those are the things I work on. But if anybody who is just starting out ever asks me what I think they could do to get into the realm where they could have the biggest effect, I, I tell them to work on women's issues and uh, and help women. I think that's the biggest thing. I think in, in our country, we have a governmental catastrophe where we've we've had a lot of progress on environment and conservation. We, we invented many of those concepts and we, we were the world leader. And now we have a guy in the White House who ran on a campaign on, uh, partly on a pledge to destroy the Environmental Protection Agency. And he is delivering on that pledge. And a uh, uh, a, a guy in charge of the interior department who is undoing protections for protected land. They're also making car exhausts dirtier. I mean, it's, um, it's awful to watch 40 years of progress be unraveled by somebody who actually lost the election and got in because of an electoral college vote. Um, those are the rules, but it, it was not the intent. And um, certainly, at the, at the very least, you know, the country is divided on those issues, but the, the actions right now are, are not middle of the road. They're very radical and they're very destructive. So people really need to turn out and vote and get all their friends and family to turn out and vote. That's something everybody can do. Yeah. So it's important to really be active citizens today. It is. Uh, you know, I'm um, not a political junkie by any means, but uh, you cannot escape the fact that it has major, major consequences and it's important to be involved. Mm -hmm. Well, what's an upcoming project for you that we can look forward to and support? 
I have a book in the works. It's a little bit of a follow-on to Beyond Words. Beyond Words was about the mental and emotional capacities of non-human animals. And this book I'm working on is about the social capacities and what they learn from one another about how to survive, things that are not matters of pure instinct, but more like their culture. And um, I have an article in the works for The Guardian about whether fish feel pain, and another one in the works uh, for The New York Times about endangered species. So I'm not sure when those articles will be appearing, but they are essentially done at this point. The book is far from done. Okay. Where can we go to follow updates um, online and on social media? Easily, it's the Safina Center, the Safina Center. It's S-A-F-I-N-A. We're on Twitter. We're on Facebook. We are on the web, safinacenter.org. And uh, there's also a personal page, carlsafina.org. We have an Instagram account. We're on a lot of the social media. We have, we have the, uh, the organization's website and a personal website. Before we go into our final five, I have an exciting news to share with you. And that is that to thank you for tuning in, we're giving away a gift card from a sustainability-driven retailer or brand to one of our newsletter subscribers at the end of every month. I do need your contact information to let you know if you've won, so to sign up, you can just enter your email address at greendreamer.com. In addition to receiving Sunday emails of inspiration that I personally write, you'll also automatically be added for a chance to win our monthly giveaways. And now to our final five. Let's power through. What's an uplifting or inspirational account, a publication or social media account you follow? Oh, um, geez, I I follow so many different things. <laughs> I uh, I get a lot of good information from Mark Beckhoff, M A R C B E K O F F. He's a good compiler of a lot of new articles on uh, a lot of new academic articles on nature and conservation. Mm -hmm. What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? I tell myself it's time to get up from my desk and go take a walk or take the kayak out and do a little birding. Um, I love taking the the dogs for a walk on the beach with my wife. We, We do that many mornings. Once in a while, she and I get out on the kayak or go fishing and uh, that reminds me that the world is still very much alive. Yeah, and this is kind of related, but what's one must do for your health, either daily or weekly? Uh, I really think taking a walk outside in a, in a nice place where you can see some nature, which you can see anywhere. You know, one of the best birding trips I had this spring was in Central Park in New York City. Mm. Um, you can walk along the river of any city and see birds and um, get a sense of the weather. I, I would much rather take a walk outside and, and look around. To me, that's a walking meditation than to go to the gym and get on a machine. So I, I think, you know, you can, both of those things are good for your body. But being outside, to me, is really good for your mind and for your emotional health. Mm-hmm. What's one simple action we can take for our planet's health this week? This week, I think just... Um, Think about what you eat and what you do with your garbage and how you might be able to do something a little bit better along those lines. Mm -hmm. What makes you most hopeful for our planet right now? The thing that makes me most hopeful is that some problems of the past, which were tremendous problems, it seemed unsolvable, 
were solved and things improved. And, and some of that happened before my lifetime. Some of that happened in my lifetime. Some of those things I worked on. And, and so I know that things that seem irretrievably bad can be turned around. Mm. And what final words of wisdom do you have for us as green dreamers? Keep dreaming green. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's definitely a way of life. And n- nobody can do everything, but everybody can do something. So do something. Nobody can do everything, but everybody can do something. Green Dreamer, thank you so much for tuning in. You can find the two tweetable key takeaways from this interview, as well as links and resources in the show notes at greendreamer.com. You can reach me with feedback on how I can improve the show for you through the website's contact page. And again, you can follow me on Instagram at Kamea Shane. That's K-A-M-E-A-C-H-A-Y-N-E. And finally, just remember... Now more than ever, our planet needs your light to thrive. So if you haven't yet, hit subscribe and I will catch you later, Green Dreamer.